This week on Kettle of Fish, actor Brad Norman stops by to talk about pulling a rabbit out of his hat. Welcome to our after show. We call Kettle of Fish the No Politics Laughter Show. It's time for Kettle of Fish. No debates, hate, or arguments allowed on Kettle of Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle of Fish. Alrighty, welcome to Kettle of Fish, the show where we chat with actors, comedians, artists, scientists, musicians, magicians, models, and even astronauts about life, love, and the creative process. I am your seafaring podcasting captain of the internet airways, Nick the Saucy One Cat Source, broadcasting to you as always from Meth Mountain, Tennessee. And I also want to introduce my high-flying, monster-fighting, moose and squirrel spying producer, the Rocky to my bullwinkle, the Prizer. Aw, I get to be Rocky? Yay! Uh, you know, I'm the yeah, chosen one. Yeah, I'm definitely one. the dumb one in this relationship. <laughs> hey, that means I can fly, and I'm cute, so I'm you good You believe you could fly. Just avoid R. Kelly, and you'll be all right. <laughs> yes, it's um, it's a dreary day out here at Meth Mountain, let me tell you. It just, there's fog everywhere. Meth mountains, I'm sure, or meth, I'm sure, is on fire and blowing up every. No, no, it's just, it's, it's one of those days, but it's okay. Only six more months of winter, we're fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm amped up because I put a post up. Trump had put something up today about um, how we need to get rid of Saturday Night Live. Somebody needs to look into. Like, I have a feeling that they're going to try to start doing sedition laws or something. Because he's like, Saturday Night Live is just a Republican hit machine, along with many others. It should be taken off the air. And I had said something like, you know, this is the seeds of fascism, right? Because how, who, they're the ones defining what is seditious. And I hear Trump people go, well, Star Wars is anti-Trump. The Colonial Cooking Channel is anti-Trump. But anyways, I got into this long argument with somebody. It was like, cite your references. Prove any of that happened. And I was like, how do you want me to prove things that happened to me in my personal life? Right. Like, how could I possibly? I mean, I could pull up threads and be like, well, here's where so-and-so said Tin Can Network needs to be burnt down because it's a Trump-hating hit machine, too. But then you have to believe the person saying that is actually a Trump supporter and not a fake account made by some liberal or made by myself. And then you're just going down the rabbit hole with this. And she's like, well, you don't like Trump, so Tin Can Media is a Trump-bashing network. And I was like, yeah, but we have... Trump voters on our network who have their own podcasts. So, yeah. like, they're anti-Trump, but they vote for and support Trump? Like, I don't understand what you're even trying to say. So, it was a very, very, as usual, convoluted argument, and I just had to kind of check out. Yeah, that happens. But, but a lot of least... people are getting really pissed off. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, at least that means that I definitely have to go back and watch this week's SNL, because obviously it was that funny. Like... Yeah, I've got to go back. Like, that's not the first time he's done that. And of course, that Family Guy episode came out and people were flipping out and <laughs> Mad Magazine all the time. And it's, it's always the same nonsense. Anyways, let's get our co-host in here. And a girl who has, who always has more than one rabbit to pull out of her hat, <laughs> Fern, the moist voice heart. Again, a very accurate intro, although a little shorter, but you really summed it up with everything uh, that you said. Like, you know, always has a rabbit to pull out of her hat. I'm... I mean, how many how many times have I talked to you and I'm like, yep, got this going on, this going on, this. I feel like an octopus, man. <laughs> I feel like an octopus juggling like a deck of playing cards all at one time while simultaneously throwing in a bag of oranges. And you just might want to go ahead and throw some razor blades in there, too. You know, <laughs> if you want to be hip with the millennials, you should have made some kind of reference to fidget spinners. <laughs> fidget, fidget spinners aren't hip anymore, Nick. That is so gone. I know. That is, is it? So, is that, that since 2018? So yeah. Yeah, I, I actually just got Nathan some things called thumb chucks, and they're oh, two little yeah. two little light balls with a string in between, and it, you you twist them with your hand like like nunchucks, but they're thumb chucks, and I was like, yeah. ooh. Well, maybe, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that will keep his eyes off the computer for a little while. I don't no. know. I, I was this close to getting some for, actually, I think I did get some for DJ. And it, it doesn't matter. He's he's not playing Fortnite, but he's playing like one of those things. I don't know. Him and all his Twitch people. I, I don't, 
I guess I would I have old. like dumb chucks because anytime I use them, I conk myself in the head with them. It's, it's possible. Yeah, I'm not that organized enough to use those either. I'm just lucky if I can actually put shoes on and walk through the house without finding a wall somewhere to bump into. So, <laughs> well, I was one I'm of those kids that like. Cat in the world. I was one of those kids at like 14 that went through that phase where I had like Chinese ninja throwing stars and nunchucks and like um, the serrated blade, like fucking Rambo and all that stuff. Yeah. For so I remember kids, me and stage. Steve Chavis like throwing, um, throwing stars against the garage. And we actually thought we were ninjas. We'd run across rooftops. We had everything except the actual ninja outfit. So we were ghetto parkour ninjas. parkour before it was bar- parkour. Oh, yeah. We would jump, like, on a fence to a garage roof and then, like, flip off and land on this other, like, awning thing. We were definitely doing parkour. We were ghetto ninjas. (laughs) Up to McKee's court. That was okay back then, but people are so triggered right now that you don't even want to put a sharp object in anyone's hand at all. Like, the sharpest object you want to put in someone's hand is maybe a bag of marshmallows. And you could have a marshmallow fight. But that's about it. Like, that's the only thing that I would want to put in anyone's hand to throw at this point. I mean, I even have to have everything that's not nailed down removed from my purview when I'm watching football. Kenny has made sure that all I have is pillows because when I'm watching football, I get mad triggered and I've, I've thrown things. So, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm normally pretty chill. So as far as uh, Chinese throwing stars, those, those yeah. Plus, could you imagine, imagine running across a bunch of roofs, on, like row housing roofs now? You would get blasted from inside, from below, because they'd think it was fucking drones or something. Yeah. <laughs> they would have to take off their tinfoil helmet and get out of that bathtub of maple syrup to do it. But, yeah. Yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah, there's no way kids could do that today. All right, let's get today's guest. Oh, wait, before we get today's guest in here, what do we have coming up, D? I was wondering when you were going to get to that. I know, we're we're very squirrely today. Uh, Well, we've got tons and tons and tons of things coming up on uh, Kettle of Fish and Musical Osmosis. Uh, Next on, I think it's next, on uh, Kettle of Fish, we are going to have Mary Birdsong. Uh, in mid-March, who of course is from Reno 911, if somehow you've lived under a rock. Um, and on Musical Osmosis coming up, we're going to have Emanuela Hutter from Hillbilly Moon Explosion. Uh, we're having Lyle Blackburn from Ghoul Town. We've got uh, comedian Nicole Birch coming on Kettle of Fish. We've got Egg Drop Soup and Kudzu Wish on Musical Osmosis. Uh, we do have a new podcast that is up on the network. That is tincan.media for the two people who have been living under a rock. Uh, just type in tincan.media or search for Kettle of Fish and Musical Osmosis on your whatever provider that you use, iTunes, etc. Uh, anyway, we do have Cat Alvarado's new podcast, Villains of History. Um, Plus, I'm recording a mini episode with Steve Whitman from the metal band from the 80s and 90s, Kicks. They're still around, but I think everybody remembers, like, Blow My Fuse. And they played um, at Wilmer's a lot. And I'm getting ready to go down and do a documentary about Wilmer's Park and the Southern Maryland music scene. So I think he's a good guest to have on right now. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. So tons of stuff. And we'll be at a con in Indiana, too, right? Yes, and we will be there. It will be fun and definitely adventurous. It's the Midwest Action Fest. So we'll be there with Mama Creepy, which is going to be the 19th and 20th of April. All right, let's get today's guest in here. Today's guest is known from tons of commercials you've seen over the years, including the sleazy stockbroker from the Scott Trader commercials, and most recently as a voice of Bullwinkle in the new Rocky and Bullwinkle Bullwinkle show on Amazon. So here he is, Brad Norman. Hey, Brad, I managed to say your name without butchering it. Can you believe it? Uh, yes, you did. You did. You did. You did. Uh, you, you had a little trouble pronouncing Bullwinkle, I heard. Because I was so but, focused uh, on not messing up Brad yeah. Norman. I've been walking around like doing um, circles in a bedroom. Brad Norman, say it correctly. <laughs> it's difficult. Brad <laughs> Norman. Honestly, honestly, one of the best parts about being Bullwinkle so far are all the uh, spell check corrections for Bullwinkle. I've, I've seen it all. Oh, you God, know, I can seen, imagine. Yeah. I've seen Wingle, Winger, Ballwankle. It's, it's Ballwankle. Wow. It, it, okay, it goes that's everywhere. It goes everywhere. Can I make a suggestion yeah. out there in Radio Land? Don't Google Ballwanker. <laughs> yeah, don't. It will not lead to good places. You'll end up on the dark web. For sure. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I want to start out talking about where you started out your TV career and commercials, because I went on this um, iSpot page and it had all your old commercials on there. And I was like, Mm -hmm. man, dude, I remember so many like now that I'm seeing them, I remember so many of these commercials. Some of them are classic, like the Scott Trader one I mentioned earlier. And it just goes to show you. How like these commercials subliminally got like, get into your consciousness and you forget about them. And then when you see them, like if I was to see the Budweiser frogs now, I'd be like, holy shit. Or it's Mikey. Like these commercials <laughs> really get into your fucking like the cultural collective psyche and stay with us. Right. I mean, maybe. I mean, it, it's to me, it, listen, commercials have been my bread and butter for, I mean, I've really built a career on them for like a 20 year career. And, uh, that works, you know, I, I'm lucky and I haven't, I haven't ever taken it for granted for a second that I'm lucky that that work's been there for me for so long. And, um, I think, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, to me, it's crazy what people latch onto. Um, like, um, I want to say like I did, I did this cars.com commercial where I was hooked up to a lie detector and it was a really simple joke, you know, like in the commercial, but man, that lie detector, it just like, people would stop me in the grocery store. Uh-huh. And be like, oh my God, that, that lie detector great. commercial is so funny. And they didn't have any questions for me or anything. They just had to stop me. Like, even while I'm looking over produce to say that. And, I, and, you know, after a while, you, as an actor who's been in a bunch of commercials, you start to wonder, like, is that the funniest thing I've ever done? <laughs> you know? But, I mean, it just seems random sometimes to someone who has been in so many commercials, like the Scott Free one, the Scott trade was probably one of my personal favorites, uh, my personal favorite campaign to do, because I love to play that kind of character. I loved, I love the comedy of self-awareness. You know what I mean? Like I love a character who has no idea how loud and crazy they are. Right. And um, actually Fern sent me a video from Fox business news that they mm-hmm. interviewed your character. <laughs> and I got to tell yeah. you, man, you that that um news anchor was really trying to get you to talk about the acting behind the scene acting uh, aspect component of it and you just fucking refused to break character it was the funniest thing well yeah because well that was cavuto right yeah that was cavuto um he was a big fan of that campaign and um and so he had me on the show and i i was i remember asking explicitly like do you want me on the show? Do you want Brad Norman on the show? Or do you want this character on the show? And they kept asking for the character, the character over and over. And I didn't get totally get a hundred percent clear on that, but it seemed like they wanted the character. I wasn't really willing to do both. Um, because I don't know. I just like, that's what I like to do. I like to play characters. So as you know, even, even up to Bullwinkle, it's like at some point when I had the Bullwinkle role, I was, I felt it felt so random. It felt like so like I had rubbed a genie's lamp. It just like I couldn't have possibly have predicted that I'd be the voice of Bullwinkle after so many years in commercials. But the more I thought about it, the more it made sense because I'd really spent my almost my entire career not just looking for commercial work, but looking for opportunities to play a character because that to me is the most fun. Um, you know, I'm sure I you know people would objectively say that I've had varying degrees of success with it, but but as an actor, like, that's really what I love to do. I love, I think of character actors like, like Fred Willard or, or, or Bill Murray or, or somebody who really just does, or Christopher Guest, you know, like somebody who does, like, embodies a character and just loves to play this character. And they're hilarious because of their, their worldview. <laughs> and I just, I just love And to lack play of that self-awareness, stuff. too. I and mean, that's the first yeah. thing he said was like, wow, that character is kind of like watching Michael Scott, like just the lack of self-awareness. And that's right. what makes it funny. Right. And, 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 and again, when I get jobs like that, you know, the Scott Trey ones, again, another great example, because that's an example of a, of a company, you know, they're, 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 they're a company that, that the, of day traders, they're a company of brokers essentially, you know? And so what, what do they necessarily know about comedy or writing comedy or filming comedy? And the answer is, because they're a company made up of brokers, you know, but I think it's really daring sometimes for a brand to say, okay, we're going to do a round of commercials here, but, and, and that's all fun and good, but like, we're going to, we're going to make them funny. And that, that is always where it, things get subjective. That's always where things get risky from an advertising standpoint, from a branding standpoint, from anything really. Uh, 
to, to make it uh, sustaining or something that people like and react to, like that's the real bold step for me. And so whether it's like, whether it's McDonald's or Scottrade or, or uh, cars.com or anything, I, I immediately give them credit uh, for taking a risk on making uh, a funny ad campaign. Cause that, that actually is a bigger risk than just, than just a standard ad campaign, in my opinion. And you did a brilliant job with Chad Ridgway. And I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at this um, Fox Business interview. And um, Nick had, had said that Dee made the correlation to Michael Scott, but I'm looking at it and I'm going, this looks like a precursor to Trump. Like this guy oh. almost is like Trump, like at maybe 30%. Um, yeah. when you look back on that, do you, do you look at this character who is like so blissfully unaware and, you know, doesn't need things like, you know, information and facts and I can just smooch people and they'll just, they'll just like me. They all love me and they'll just believe what I want them to believe and I can get what I want and I can move on. And like, do you, do you see this character? Do you look back on it and go, holy shit. Like I was Trump before Trump was Trump. Uh, no, I don't. I, well, to be honest, no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think about that character in terms of Trump. I will give you the real answer, and the real answer is that sometimes I think of him as a precursor to Kathleen Jack Sparrow because I remember uh, hearing yes. this. I remember hearing Great. this, uh, and, and that's ridiculous and obviously totally unfounded. But the only reason I say that is because I remember seeing some interview with uh, Johnny Depp about uh, about. Uh, getting the costume and the props and everything together for Captain Jack Sparrow. And they like put a bunch of rings on a table in front of him. And he just got to pick them. And that's the same thing that happened to me with, with Chad Ridgway. They opened this big box of like gold rings and they're like, we're thinking like a ring and a pinky ring. And I'm like, Oh, a pinky ring. That sounds epic. So I got to pick through this huge, like thing full of like, just these, these boss, like gold man rings, you know, to, and, and really help put the character together on the spot. That was a very similar situation to what Johnny Depp described in putting his character together. So I've always sort of more related that character to Jack Sparrow, <laughs> but I don't know if he's a precursor to Trump. Um, because, because even at the time when we were doing that character, um, you know, he was, he's a stereotype of, of the industry, the stereotype of, of investment. So that, that was the whole thing. Like, like even the, even the CEO, Roger Reining at the time was like, I like this character because, you know, he, I, I know this guy, like I worked with this guy when I was young. I mean, they're still out there. They're, they're just greasy, epic pinky ring wearing, you know, double breasted, full Windsor knot, French collar. Uh -huh. <laughs> you thought know, that like, out. Yeah. The more you, the more you, yeah, he want it's, it's, it's almost like a, it's for the brand. It was like a comedy of negative example. Like you'd see this character who is just a crap show, you know, uh, just a sleazy, fast talking liar. And that was really supposed to represent the opposite of a customer experience at Scottrade. So <laughs> it's, it's all pretty simple math. when you come down to it? Well, when you go back to how you kind of approach these roles, and you do kind of have this vibe, this this vibe of all American guy next door, no matter how that just the tone and the demeanor, no matter what role you're playing. One of the things I was thinking as I was watching all these commercials is how has this guy not ended up on a sitcom yet? Because he is perfect for primetime <laughs> sitcom material. I mean, yeah, that listen for some listen that's 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 really acting, you know, that's really being an actor. I, I know. I mean, I would counter that. I would almost counter that with a point of, you know, like of all the actors that I've known in my time that can't really even get into a commercial. I mean, like funny, funny, brilliant, creative people that for some reason just can't get booked on even like a commercial that I would do. So, you know, that that's it's there's there's something inexplicable about having a creative career. There's something that. Uh, you know, I think that's one thing people don't understand is that it's not sometimes it's perceived as like a slow rise uh, for the most part. And, and really right. with, a, with a creative career, it's really more of a winding road. It's really more ups and downs. And um, and like I said, it's I, I really I can't complain because then I feel ungrateful. I like to work. And that's really what I'm after. Um and in commercials are steady work for me. I, I mean, I would love to do some more TV. I'd love to be on a primetime sitcom, but that is, uh, 
you know, that's, that's sort of the long, a long line for the roller coaster and I'm in it, but it's still a long line. Well, Fern did go down the Brad Norman yeah. rabbit hole this past week. And she also sent me a pilot, right, Fern, to my poor parents. And I think that kind of showcases what we're talking about here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my I, poor I parents. Yeah, that, was that, that was great, yeah. dude. I, I laughed. I rolled. I was like, how is this? With some of the other stuff that Netflix or Hulu has picked up, some of the garbage I've seen, I'm looking at this going, <laughs> how has this not been picked up by somebody? I mean, it's perfect. Like, it's well-written. It's very funny. It has just enough adult humor in there to make you feel just slightly uncomfortable, uh, maybe a little guilty if the kids are in the other room, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's perfect. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's awesome. It's like, yeah, my kids can't exactly watch this, but man, my son, I don't know, my 16-year-old son, I might show him that. Like, he would get a kick out of that. But um, it, it was really great. I, I have to wonder what happened with that because that is, that is fantastic. Yeah, I, again, like, I was attracted to that. Because, again, there was, I don't even know if he ever wrote a full pilot for My Poor Parents. It was really, like, he wanted to shoot a teaser for it and try to um, shop it that way. And uh, this guy named Dan Pilar and uh, he, um, I met him on a shoot. He was a production assistant on a shoot and we were from uh, sort of the same area growing up. And so we were, we just kind of talked and had lunch and then he showed me a treatment that he was making for, uh, for a show he wanted to make. And, uh, and I thought the premise was really simple. I, I almost thought that it had been done before. Um, and then I sort of realized that, no, I don't think this has been done before. Uh, <laughs> but those are the best things, though. I would write songs for my old punk band, even Steven. I'd be like, man, is this riff been done before? Is this topic mm -hmm. like um, mall security? Nobody or FBI guy. Nobody's ever fucking wrote a punk song about mall security. That's crazy. But those end up being the best <laughs> success because it sounds like something that should have already existed. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm, maybe there is something to that. I mean, gosh, it would be really, it's really hard to nail that down, isn't it? But you, you might be right. There might be something in the, there might be something in the familiar that fools us into feeling like it's being recycled. Exactly. I, 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 yeah. I don't know. I'm really, really talking out of the side of my mouth now. I'm not really sure. Uh, well, we do that all the time but, here. Yeah. We've got a book <laughs> in our mouth. We're bad little fishies. So we're always but talking yeah, I mean, out the side. You know, I, I just thought. Uh, I'll, I just, you know, I thought I was doing a favor for a friend. I mean, we kind of really shot that on the fly, the My Poor Parents stuff. And again, it was just an idea that I was attracted to. I thought, wow, this is really funny, you know. Um, and again, that all goes back to Bullwinkle. When that landed in my lap, I was, um, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was really excited. But, you know, I was also a little nervous because there's a lot of reverence around those characters and around those cartoons and around that IP Indeed. And then, it's, you know, the little, the more and more that I read, I was like, wow, you know, okay, they're really taking a nice, like, focused swing at this. They really want to do it right. So, you know, then I wanted it even more, and I'm just really glad it worked out. <laughs> That's well, the hard one of part. the things about clear. Bullwinkle, and it was a little bit frustrating when I was reading the comment threads, I went over to, like, the Facebook Bullwinkle page and YouTube videos of trailers and episode clips. And uh, one negative thing I saw people say is with this constant comparing it to the show, the cartoon from the 50s and 60s. And I loved yeah. that cartoon growing up. I mean, I was a kid mid-70s. And I loved watching that grow up. My dad loved that cartoon. And I loved the new um, incarnation of it. But it just seems ridiculous to me to try to compare the two. We're in two totally different places culturally. And we're in two totally different places sophistication-wise of what kids, which, you know, it's still an animated show, found funny right. then and what kids find funny today. I think it's nuts to try to compare it. Well, yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, just from a, techno a technological standpoint, it's uh, it's hard to compare it. Um but I, it's it, it, you know I think that that um, I think that everybody had that in mind going in. I, I think everybody that I worked with, and again I'm not speaking for Prime Video or DreamWorks or anybody. This is just from my personal perspective. Right. Um, everybody, everybody that walked on to the, everybody that I met during the show, everybody that I met um, writing the show or producing the show or anything like that. Um, anybody that was working on the show, even the higher level executives, like everyone seemed to have uh, that in mind. Like they, they knew that 
I think maybe they knew deep down, some of them more than others, uh, recognized that there's a possibility that we might not be able to please everybody with a reboot of Rocky and Bullwinkle because for some reason that's, you know, that, that those characters are in those cartoons are just a teeny bit more sacred to, uh, to, uh, the people that love them so much. And, uh, and sanctity and comedy are very strange bedfellows. You got that <laughs> right. And and it's it's very uh, so. But but I think because there was that little bit of reverence with everybody walking in, that in my opinion, anyway, obviously I'm biased, but I really do feel like we came up with the best case scenario, and that is that you know everybody felt if I'm you know now I'm really paraphrasing, I'm really trying to condense this thought down, but but everybody looked a little shook. And that made everybody work a little harder. Um, and uh, so I think that the show had a little bit more in mind of what worked about the old show. Um, and, 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 and how, and we really wanted to make the show like a love letter, you know, it had to be sort of a love oh. letter to the classic as well as something, as well as something that could exist in contemporary times. Again, it, it couldn't be the same show from 60 years ago, the 60 year old property. It premiered in uh, 1959 in November, so it'll be 60 years old this year. <laughs> um, that's a long time. You know, obviously Mickey Mouse is older, Bugs Bunny is older, but this is Rocky and Bullwinkle. And the people who like this show uh, love this show for its tone, for its pace, for its um, its self-awareness. That's that's I think the one thing that I love the most about Rocky and Bullwinkle is uh, you've seen a lot of characters in the past break the fourth wall. Uh, you know, everybody from Groucho Marx to Deadpool break the fourth wall, you know, but like, nice uh, point. but, but these characters are, are, are distinctly aware that not only are they cartoons, but they're the lead characters in a kid's show. And that alone is like this huge, like burning engine for comedy, I think. And that's interesting too, what you had said about wanting to stay kind of true to the product or like going back. Did you spend a lot of time researching Bullwinkle? I imagine you do the voice for Bullwinkle. You did not create it just to put that out there. Cause I think um, we were saying before that you had created or written it. You were the voice no. of Bullwinkle. Did, did you have to go back and watch all binge watch those episodes? Was it something you grew up with? So you already had that Bullwinkle frame of mind or was it something well, you had I mean, to heavily research? Uh, no, yes, on both accounts, really. Uh, I, I mean, I did grow up with the characters. I saw them on reruns. I grew up in Detroit, uh, so I would see them on reruns on, like, Sundays uh, from the Windsor Station. That was probably my first experience with Rocky and Bullwinkle as a child. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously I loved them for my whole life. Uh, I really thought they were super funny. Rocky and Bullwinkle were always my favorite segment of the show. Um and, uh, but when I, when I got the role, I'm just the kind of actor who kind of likes to research. Um, some people don't, some people don't like to get hip deep in it, but I really do. I like to wade in. Yeah. I'm the same way. Anything I could, um, I, you know, I didn't want to ever, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel with Bullwinkle because I felt like that would be sort of a betrayal of what worked about the character in the first place. And certainly a betrayal to, uh, to Bill Scott, who originated the role. Um, and, uh, and so I didn't want to do anything that I didn't want to do anything that was vastly different. I wanted to try to voice match the tone at least, but I also knew that going into a new series that he, I'd have to vocalize in ways that he hadn't in the past. Um, you know, there, there would be just, just from a modern writing standpoint, right, you'd have to modernize where I'd have to, Absolutely. yeah, I'd have, I'd have to, I'd have to do something. So it's funny. My girlfriend <laughs> kind of describes it as, uh, as Bullwinkle, with the, who had cake for breakfast, you know, like he's just a little sugared up. Like, ah, <laughs> we'll wake old 2.0. <laughs> yeah. You know, like not, 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 you know, not an attempt at like an, like an, a reinvention of the wheel, but just an attempt to make him, um, make him fit into a 20 second commercial as opposed to a 30 second commercial. <laughs> like just give him a little speed. But that a seems like a hard it. needle to thread, though. I mean, you don't want to like go oh, full out like internet edge lord with him, but you do want to keep him right. relevant enough where a kid will get the jokes. He can't still be making the same jokes he was making in the '60s. Well, you know, yeah, to a degree, but at the same time, if we did 26 episodes like we've done, and you didn't one time 
hear hear Bullwinkle say, "Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat." Would you be satisfied with the experience? <laughs> oh no, I thought that the first episode, I was like, man, they right. haven't mentioned what's the matter you. They haven't mentioned like Frostbite Falls, and I was glad right. that you guys actually started tackling that as the series went on, because I was yeah. like, well, Fractured Fairy Tales isn't here, Dudley Dude Right's not here, and then when you didn't mm-hmm. even make those references to like Potsylvania and stuff like that, I was like, huh, I wonder right. if it's going to totally break away from that continuity, from that um, legacy of what it was before. But I liked how you guys really mixed that stuff in, but wasn't overbearing yeah. about it. Well, I mean, and yeah, again, that's an example. Of, I, I think when it really came down to it, you know, DreamWorks, you know, Amazon wanted the show. DreamWorks wanted to make it. Um, the surviving members of the Ward family were co-producers. So Jay's daughter, uh, Tiffany, and her daughter, Amber, uh, were you know, involved from the get-go, they saw the show at every step of the way. Um, and they had, a you know, sort of approval on everything from scripts to storyboards to voice takes and castings. Um, uh, and that, again, that was, I was lucky because anytime I felt as an actor, I felt like I was maybe in over my head with the role. I could remind myself that I was handpicked by the wards and that really made a big difference to me. I wow. felt that really emboldened wow. me as I went. Um, and, uh, because again, I hadn't had, uh, any voiceover experience, not a series. I primarily made my career in commercials. And, um, and so again, I had that, I, I, I didn't have any of the fame side of Hollywood, but I did have the work and, um, uh, and I always had voiceover because I had done radio versions of a lot of commercials. So that's kind of how I learned the technique to stand in the booth and not pop the screen and, you know, like just how to be in the booth and record something. That's kind of how I learned to be an actor in a booth in front of a microphone by doing radio versions of commercials I'd filmed. Uh, but until Bullwinkle, I hadn't really worked on a series or on a character. And so I really was picked out of the blue. I really was. It was very, it was a very much, a, it was a very, it sounds Willy very Wonka cosmic moment for me. Yeah. It was a very Willy Wonka moment for me because, you know, I had auditioned for, I mean, I had been in LA for, I'd been with the agent I was with for the better part of three years or four years when I, when I got the bowling audition and, um, I had already auditioned for at least 300 projects and, and that's, I'm really not exa- exaggerating. I mean, at least 300 different commercials, animated series and things like that. And like not even a callback. So I, but I always came in with, um, with an idea and a low fence around my idea so I could be directable. And I never blamed the fact that I'm booking on, on, you know, I never projected that frustration on my representation. So, you know, we just had a really good working relationship. We just kept hammering away at it. And then lo and behold, <laughs> you know, I get the golden ticket and it sounds amazing. And it was a lot of work and it was really challenging. And the rest of the cast were very experienced. Uh, you know, Tara Strong has yeah, yeah, she is. credits or something in her name, you know, I mean, I walked into a room full of ringers. I mean, the, the other actors on the show, they're all so brilliant. They're all just so thoroughly brilliant and uh, so much more experienced than I was. And I just made the choice on the spot to be like, you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that I know what I'm doing. I'm just going to tell all these people that, look, this is my first big job and I, I may make mistakes and I may appear green, but it's not because uh, I'm an idiot. It's because this is new ground for me. And they were so wonderful about it. I mean, they were just, they took that and they looked at me through that lens and they helped me and supported me. And, oh, it was just, I, I couldn't have asked for a better experience from a small group of actors. It really was. That's really was amazing. And it's actually an inspiration hearing you talk about all, you know, doing over 300 auditions and not even getting callbacks. Fern, you're always telling me, just stick to the grind, stick to the grind. Something will break sooner or later when I'm like, man, we've done like 400 episodes of this podcast and I don't feel like we're getting to the place, not just the kettle of fish, but all our podcasts. And I don't feel like we're getting to the place that we need to be. So Brad's story is really kind of inspirational, right, Fern? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all about the grind. And that's the one thing that we hear over and over and over again. I mean, between... You know, all our guests, you know, tell me, tell us, you know, me, Nick, Danielle, everyone, it, it's all about that grind. You just got to keep grinding it out, grinding it out. 
And it's, it's sometimes hard, it's sometimes frustrating, but it's also very rewarding. And the one thing, you know, I was never a huge Rocky and Bullwinkle fan. Like, I wasn't someone that watched it all the time. Of course, I knew who Rocky and Bullwinkle was. Everybody knows who Rocky and Bullwinkle are. But it was nothing that I was immersed into. Um, but looking at the, the reboot, it, it's like I'm looking at the demographics, right? Like, I see a lot of the same relationships, Natasha and Boris, Rocky Bullwinkle, uh, you know, just the whole dynamic is basically the same with, with some differences, but, you know, right down to the intro, the intro is more of a James Bond type intro. And to me, the aesthetics of the animation is more like uh, reminiscent for me personally of like the early 2000s animation. So that demographic I think that this is capturing is not only just the youth, but it's also capturing the people who are maybe weren't really aware or, or were watching Rocky and Bullwinkle on its first run in the you know, late 50s, early 60s, but people mm -hmm. who would see the reruns. And I think, and I'm wondering, is, is that kind of the demographic that you were going for, like people in their 30s and 40s, as well as, as the younger children trying to hit those, those nostalgia points, as well as wrap it around to the kids of the people who are in their 30s and 40s. I, first of all, if that's the case, I think it's genius. Um, uh -huh. But I'm wondering if that demographic was considered in this reboot as far as how it was going to be presented, because I do think it stays true to the Rocky and Bullwinkle of the, the late 50s, early 60s with a great um, demographic grab of those people who did see the reruns? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, first of all, that is a fantastic question, Fern. Thank you so much. Um, second of all, um, you know, the, the, the real answer to this is that um, is all in that what I think of as sort of like that DreamWorks success formula, you know, um, you, the, the answer is we were trying to make a Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon that kids would get into and that parents could sit down and watch without going crazy. Um, you know, uh, I think that's what all sort of family entertainment sort of aims for now. Um, but we wanted to make a show that had stuff in it for, for everybody, regardless of their age, that liked these characters. Um, you know, again, it is stripped down. There are certain things about it that are intrinsically different. Um, it's not... Um, it's not like a variety show. It's not, it doesn't have segments in it. And personally, you know, I, I actually love that because again, as a kid, my favorite stories were the moose and squirrel stories. And I used to get frustrated when they get cut off at four and a half minutes. Um, I feel like fairy tales have been thoroughly fractured. <laughs> at ah. this point. Um, you know, Shrek is just one example. Um, and I, I don't know if there's really much left there to farm as far as like fracturing fairy tales. Uh, in, a, in a series. I don't know. I could be wrong. That's just my opinion. Um, and Dudley Do-Right, I, I love those. I love that character. Um, it, you know, it's sort of based on like a 1920s, 30s, like silent film melodrama. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know uh, if I could mine a whole series out of those characters myself, but again, I'm, I'm not writing it. I'm just really, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm excited that it's a half hour of the boys and the bads. I really like that. And, and I think DreamWorks did the smart thing. I think in development, they did the smart thing. It keeps going back to this, like what worked about the show in the first place, you know, and what worked about the show in the first place was that there was this sort of spy thriller melodrama going on around these two fuzzy idiots. And, uh, <laughs> wow. maybe not, maybe not mess with that. You know? <laughs> I think you really captured the vibe of that perfectly. Let me kind of shift gears here and ask you this. Do you have a lot of control over the character itself? If you get lines and you're like, oh, I don't think Bullwinkle would do this or say this in this situation, do you have a lot of flexibility or is it kind of like you just have to come in and read what's on the paper? Um, I, I try to, I mean, I've really liked the writing so far. Uh, you know, uh, so I, I don't really, uh, I don't really mess with it too much. Uh, of course, you know, I think when, when, uh, if I have an idea or if I want to change a line, um, I try not to change it intrinsically, but when you're, when you're voice acting and you're in a session with, uh, the producer or the session director or whatever, there's, there's always an opportunity there to just be random and be, uh, and just kind of let what happens happen. And, uh, uh, so I think when it comes down to it, like the only time I ever really want to change anything is when I might think it's funnier 
for half right. a second. I might be, I might be right. I might be wrong, but I feel like as a, as a lifelong student of comedy, as as a, as a professional actor, as a working class actor, really, um, I. I, I love getting down to quibbling about what's funnier because I feel like if we're having that quibble, then we're having the right argument. <laughs> nice. Are you critical of yourself? Do you go back and watch the episodes and go, man, I can be more moose-like or I could have done this here or did, or I could have enunciated and landed here instead of there? Or are you pretty relaxed and easygoing with your work? Well, I mean, no, I'm obsessive about it. Um, like you actually I feel you. Research. Same here. I mean, you asked me earlier about research and, you know, I did, I, I had three books on the subject. I, you know, I, I read everything I could. I, I even had lunch a couple of times with the wards and asked them specific questions that were like holes in my research. Um, so, um, and the J ward story is still absolutely fascinating to me and I didn't really even expect it to be. Uh, but when I read about it, um, about how the, the show, I mean, Fern, you said earlier that everybody knows Rocky and Bullwinkle and all I can think of when I hear that yeah. is how unlikely that is, like how just absolutely unlikely it was in the first place that these characters ever made it on TV. Um, and, uh, because I've read about the production history and stuff like that, and I would encourage everybody else to do it because it is a fascinating story. It really, really is. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm obsessive about, my work i'm i'm self-critical about my work um but i don't punish myself about it uh i feel like that's where a trap that a lot of creatives fall into like especially when you know it's recorded it's mixed it's in the episode like if you don't like the take it's really nothing you can do about it <laughs> um you know call up dreamworks and be like change that but i don't i don't think i could do that i don't have the swing <laughs> do you know if you've been picked up for a third season uh, no, I do not. I don't know. I know that the original order was 26 episodes. Um, we made 26 episodes. Um, we released 26 episodes. You know, Amazon and the streaming companies, they're not really beholden to a season like uh, broadcast companies are. Right. So if they decide they want more cartoons, then they'll let us know. I, as far as I know today, I, I don't know if they've ordered anymore. Um, but uh I certainly am proud of what we've done. I, I really hope that uh, people have an open mind about it and uh, give it a shot because I really do think that we, I think the show really hits its stride um, and, uh, and really manages to be sort of this living love letter to the original, which I think it should have been in the first place. And it, it is, it is. And I think one so of the best of things it. about it is how you have segments, three or four episodes, the monster series or the spy series, and then the intros to those are a reflection of what that storyboard's about for those particular three or four yeah. episodes. And I think that yeah. really puts it in a great pocket where you don't feel like you're watching one ongoing series. You feel like mm -hmm. you're watching a bunch of little mini-movies within mm -hmm. the series. Yeah. And that's what I like best right. about it. And that, and that again, that's that's a great example of this of our show being that living love letter because that idea alone of having like a five or six chapter story with the same title sequence that is both hearkening back to the original show because a lot of the stories with Rocky and Bullwinkle were serialized into chapters that went on for seasons. Oh, they were. Season. That's right. Yeah. Um, or, um, and again, that's something that worked about the show and, um, and it also addresses streaming. We wanted to do stories that were four or five uh, chapters long so that kids, if they were into it, could come home, watch one, and then go finish their homework. Or they could sit down and watch three with their mom and dad and everybody would get a laugh. So that, you know, that, that it sort of addresses the now and the then. Yeah, it's a brilliant format. Let me finish up with this. I've got a couple fan questions. I didn't Google them. I know everybody will just Google it. It's, I, I purposely didn't Google it. I wanted to ask you. Let me ask you a couple of my idiot fanboy questions. One, I can't wait. I've been, uh, this is why I showed up. <laughs> I, I aim to please. All right. Bullwinkle, J Moose, Rocky J Squirrel. What does the J stand for? Do you uh, know? It stands for J. It stands for the name J. It's actually the, the, the initial stands for J Ward. So J Ward oh, is the, wow. uh, what, the, one of the originators. He and Alex Anderson created the, the characters in the first place. And uh, Jay was the executive producer on the show. And anything that happened on the show back in the day, 
had to be J-rated. And uh, the staff, so Jay got the last look at everything, every joke, every storyboard before it went to uh, animation. And uh, they, the staff even made a stamp that was a giant J, and he would just, like, stamp it. That is so amazing <laughs> fucking trivia. I love that. Yeah. All right, the last yeah, one, was... and I'm going to throw it over to Fern. Um, what did Rocky and Bullwinkle go to What's the Matter You for? Do you know what their major was? Um, I believe uh, Bullwinkle went... Uh, no, okay, so Bullwinkle went for... Um, well, he's an inventor. So I would, I would guess that he probably went for some sort of engineering. Um, and Rocky probably took a little bit of pilot's training. Maybe, <laughs> maybe some rugby. Nice. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure what they majored in. I, that, that, oh, man, I haven't been stumped in a while. I'm not sure what they majored in. Probably friendship. Their minor was friendship. Sure. Minor or friend, there needs to be a flashback episode about their college days. I would watch that four or five episode. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's an answer in the in my research somewhere. I, I don't know if they ever declared a major. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's really funny. I can't, I can't imagine what Bullwinkle's major would be. Um, probably. Well, I think engineer is. I could see him making Rube Goldberg machines all day. <laughs> Yeah, he, he is. He's a famed inventor. Um, yeah, he he only has uh, he he has moose strength, and he can invent nonsensical things, and he can remember everything he ate. That those were his uh, superpowers. That I read in my research, he can remember absolutely everything he ate, which I thought again was very funny and random. Fern, <laughs> do you have a couple idiot fangirl questions? I actually have a couple of social media questions because I've been checking Uh-oh. out your social media presence oh, and Lord. you know I have noticed that like on Facebook and on Twitter you're actually really good about being a pretty apolitical. There's not a whole lot of political fodder on Twitter to you know or or Facebook. It's it's not a, like a huge political presence, a little bit, but but not a lot. And I'm wondering if that is purposeful. Are you just, like, not involved in politics, so that's why? Or is that purposeful because you feel like that would, you know, kind of affect your career in, in any kind of way if you were to really be out there and open, especially in this landscape in this day and age? Um, and you feel like, you know, that's... Yeah, that's one bad tweet can bury you. That's what I was saying oh, the other yeah. day when we were saying they used to say there's no such thing as bad publicity, and I'm like, that's not true anymore. You could get destroyed yeah. by one tweet. Yeah. Any, I know anybody who says that's never been to Twitter jail, right? Uh, <laughs> good point. Um, I, I uh, you know, just it's in my in my private citizen life. Um, I, I am very political. Uh, I, I have I have very uh, very strong political views i don't like to argue with people on fa- on social media i don't know right. if social media is um i don't know if social media is the vehicle through which i express my opinions i don't even know if it's necessary that i express my opinions politically uh in a public forum i i'm not sure what they'd add to the conversation um but uh you know i am um, I just try not to do it as a rule on social media. I try just to steer clear of it because one, I'd really try not to let anything get my goat. And that is hard enough in modern times. Right. It's really hard not to just like fly. Damn near impossible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and right. I mean, it really is. It, it's difficult not to have something really get your goat or light your fuse. And that that's, that's tough. Um, because that doesn't serve me either um, as a person. It doesn't make me any more functional. <laughs> so uh, so I just try, I guess my answer, the short answer is I just try to steer clear of it on social media because uh, I just don't know if uh, that's the way I want to convey my ideas um, politically. Um, I mean, to be honest, as a person, you know, I'm, I'm pretty progressive um, and I would probably fall in line with a lot of what uh what the the left side would uh would push and um and i certainly don't approve of some of the stuff on the other side but uh but i don't know if yelling about it on social media or all capsing somebody or even joking in a mean way would do 
I'm not sure what effect. Oh, I'll tell you what it'll do. It's an ongoing headache because I post about one tenth as much political stuff as I used to. And my peace of mind in life is a hell of a lot better. I posted something political Mm -hmm. today, but that's very rare. I might post something political once every once or twice every month. And when I do, it's usually about free speech issues because that's something I'm really passionate about. Sure. And, you know, and just, again, I do appreciate the question. I, I, I think I respect it a great deal. I just sometimes when we're having this conversation and I say, so, and I give the answer I give, it makes me, it makes me sound like, you know, like I'm putting everybody through this purity test or I'm asking somebody to let, asking everyone to rise above or change the tone of social media. Like I'm not trying to do that either. <laughs> I don't. No, not at all. A lot of things, do, lot no, of things that I, I do that... or don't do aren't protest or pride they just they're just you have separated your personal from your professional and that's actually smart you know and i i appreciate that you know people who who are out there with their political stuff and they say you know i'm just gonna do it anyway but it's also Mm -hmm. smart to not do that too and say you know my personal life is mine and my professional life is mine and those are two separate boxes and that's cool but having said that i am going to kind of this past Wednesday, you sent a tweet out, and I I am interested in your thoughts on this because you did say that if your friends see you or your name on TV even once, that they think you're a millionaire, and if they don't, that they think you're homeless. And after all mm-hmm. those years, the perception is still that extreme, and it couldn't be further from reality. So right. I guess when I look at that, and you know, the amount of people that we have interviewed, we definitely see that's the case. But to the general public or the people in in the um, in the purview, I can understand where they would have that feeling. But before you got into the business, did you also have that perception? Did you think people were either starving or millionaires, or is that something you you learned that, that you kind of knew going in, and did your expectations of, you know, moving to L.A., did it measure up to the reality um, of the industry? Um, well, first of all, I post stuff like that, and I post and I tweet stuff like that um, really to dispel a lot of the mysticism that surrounds being an actor. I think that there's I, you know, I was just joking about this with my agent yesterday. I, you know, I said, I know whatever door I walk through, I carry all the stereotypes of an actor on my shoulders. <laughs> and I don't have a leg to stand on, really. I can't be like, well, now, wait a second. Where did you guys hear that actors were spoiled idiot narcissists? When has that ever happened? You know, like there, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of rumors and examples of that. And so it, it kind of comes, the, the stigma sort of comes with being an actor. When I, I post and tweet stuff like that, because I just want to try to dispel the myth about it. I, you know, I, as, as a kid, sure, there's some point where I was like, oh man, if I ever work the Muppets, I'm going to be a billionaire. <laughs> um, but that, but th- that's a coloring book understanding of the world. As I got older and as I drilled down into like my craft, I, I, I saw that there, you know, there's probably more work out there than there is fame. And I decided for myself that the work for me was more important. And I know that makes me sound disingenuous, uh, but it's true. I, I never, I feel like that, that craving for fame is where things get toxic. And so, so I try to eliminate right. that from what I'm doing. Um, and, uh, and so far it's so good. <laughs> you know? Um, I did well for myself for a long time in Chicago and commercials and, in improv and, and, uh, and I, at one point I, I was really much, I'm kind of a bird in the hand kind of guy. I was working all the time in Chicago. And I, I used to say this ridiculous thing that you only say when you're in your thirties, you know, like I'll go to LA when LA calls me. (laughs) 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 I mean, right. I mean, I'm intolerable. I was intolerable. Uh, so, but at, but at one point, you know, LA did call. And, you know, and they asked me, you know, like CBS called and asked me to audition for like CSI or something like that. And I was like, well, I've been talking all this crap all this time. And, and now <laughs> it, it just happened. I've been called so to I the major start, league. So I'm out of here. Right. You know, so maybe I should, you know, and then I thought, well, really moving out to LA for any actor is about, it should be about avoiding regret. You know, like if you, if you think to yourself, like in 20 years as an actor, you're going to regret that you never tried LA. Well, then absolutely move to LA, <laughs> you know, like give it a shot. Uh, because I don't necessarily recommend anyone live with that regret of like something they wish they would have tried. Right. Uh, uh, but, uh, but that's what it was for me. I was like, well, I'll give it a shot. You know, if I break even, then great. 
if I don't, well, then I can come back and lick my wounds and, and who knows, maybe something amazing will happen. And again, you know, now I'm a giant cartoon moose. And again, back to that, for that original question about political stuff. Now that I'm bullwinkle, especially on my public feeds, I try not to do anything political because now that I'm bullwinkle, I, I could possibly really upset someone who's like 13 with autism. And because, it's because that's the kind of person that would follow me because they're into cartoons or they identify with the character in some way. And I would hate to upset right. somebody like that. So, so I, I think of it more as, I think of it more, uh, less as a brand than more as just a consideration for, you know, uh, for the general public that follows me. My life is really randomly adorable now because I have kids that follow me and ask me questions, and, you know, send me messages and stuff that ask me questions about cartoons and, and I love it. I love answering the mail and I love communicating with fans. I absolutely adore it. Uh, and those people are always in my mind uh, because let's be honest, when you pull, post something politically nowadays, you're already usually at least 10% mad. <laughs> that has to be the best thing Only I've ever 10%. heard anyone ever say. Seriously. If you, if you can wake up in the morning and say, my life is randomly adorable, then you are going to have a good day. Like, that yeah, is totally. amazing. That is pretty cool. It is really hard to be in a bad mood. It really is. And I still am sometimes, you know, like when I got to go get my car smog checked or something. Like, I'm still, you know, I'm still in a bad mood sometimes. But it, it's, it's hard to wake up in a bad mood because, you know, you know somewhere that you've made some kids happy. Or even better yet, like you've had, there, there's been a connection made from, from your comedy to a child to a parent. And that alone, that little bit of peace or that shared comedy there, like, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Wow. This is like a Gandhi um, moment. I've never gone from a political question into the waters of adorable and now, and look how I'm making kids happy. You have totally turned this into a positive place where I would take it I down a third deep a, rabbit hole. I think you'll find a lot of people that you admire in comedy and in entertainment uh, will give an answer like that about what they do. Um, you'll, you'll almost find what I just said derivative because a lot of the people that say stuff like that, they say, Oh, I just love to make people laugh. I'm just trying to make people happy. Stuff is so hard. Life is so hard. I just want to make people happy, forget their troubles for three and a half minutes. Like that, that, that really is true. People do think about that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there's so much goodwill, uh, attached to this character, this specific cartoon moose like this this character even out of the canon of american cartoon characters there's so much goodwill uh attached to this character i just want to respect it as much as possible um and right uh on. i just want to i just want to garden that if i can uh, and i'm just really damn proud of how funny the show is that we made um cartoons have kind of come full circle you know rocky and bullwinkle they really set the tone for a lot of the animated comedies that huh. work right now. That's, they're kind of like um, the bookends at this point, when you think yeah, about it. Yeah, and, and now they're sort of back in an arena where uh, there's even major awards for animated series for, quote, general audiences. And that whole general audience animated series, that whole concept was, was groundbroken by Rocky and Bullwinkle. There just wasn't anything like it on, on TV. Um, uh, because there were other cartoons on TV at that point, but they were getting hit with frying pans. I mean, they weren't talking about A-bombs or, <laughs> you know, anything like that. It was, it was a completely different cartoon for its time, and it set the tone for an animated series in America to this day. Um, and now it's back, and it has to appeal to kids, and it has to have enough comedy in it to have the, ki have, have the parents sit down next to them and enjoy the show with them. I think we've done it. I really do. I think we've done it. I think and I agree wholeheartedly. That, yeah, I think I think everyone was surprised. I mean, even people that worked on it was surprised. Were surprised that it came out as good as it did. But when we when we when we had uh, we had our first screening on the DreamWorks lot, and I hadn't seen the show finished before, and uh, Tiffany Ward got up and spoke, and she said two things that really like drove us through to the end because we still had a lot of work to do on the series. And she said, one, the first thing she said was, uh, <laughs> nobody, it was really hard to get the show rebooted because nobody wanted to screw it up. And that really That's hit powerful. the room pretty hard. Yeah. Um, and then she said, uh, but I've seen a lot of this, and I know in my heart that my dad would love this show. <laughs> 
and like I just bawled. <laughs> I just, I just, I just bawled sitting in the Aww. audience. Wow. And, and those two things, those two things really drove us through the last 13. And I would encourage people to get through the last 13 because the last 13, whew, they're just rocket fast and really funny and just really true to the original. It's just it's really lovingly done. Really, well, I really think you guys done. have done a stellar job. I think this is a good place to end. Um, before we go, Dee messaged me and said, because she's the one who pulled all that information about how much is the mountain worth. We were talking to Curtis on the 100th yes. episode. <laughs> she's got the nerd skills, and she actually pulled information about what's the matter you. Yes, I oh, okay. did. Um, so... Rocky and Bullwinkle have named What's the Matter You, and it's spelled really weird, as their alma mater, uh, mater. but uh, Rocky, there's no information whatsoever on what he went for. However, Bullwinkle went on a football scholarship, and he did get an honorary Mooster's degree for thwarting uh, Natasha and Boris, so I thought that was a lot of fun. That's right, a football scholarship. Yep. I knew that. I just could, I couldn't remember <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. yep. Now it's time for Bullwinkle well, the football years. Yep. Yeah, you can tell. I mean, he, he's 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 more of a doer than a thinker. You know? <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> All righty, Brad, I want to thank you so much for spending an hour with us. Please tell everybody oh, thanks, where man. we can find Rocky and Bullwinkle on Amazon, um, where we can find your social media. Tell us where to find everything on the interwebs. Well, you can watch uh, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle from DreamWorks and J Ward Productions. We're now streaming 26 half-hour episodes on Amazon Prime Video, free with your Amazon Prime membership. If you're interested in following me, I'm on uh Instagram at BD Norms, and uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter at Brad and Action. You can follow me on Twitter or on uh, on Instagram. There's there's always fun stuff happening. Right on. All righty, let's get out of here. Brad, thank you so much for calling in today. Fern, do you want to take yeah. us home? Oh, hey, look, you were talking about um, how people connect with things on commercials, and I remembered that Xfinity commercial where you lubed up with coconut oil and jumped on the dry slip and slide. And that's yeah. really just a Saturday night here at the Space Cut Time Continuum. So I totally connected with that. And I want to thank you for <laughs> all of your work. You're a super funny guy. Um, you Thanks, should guys. be doing lots of other great things. Rocky and Bullwinkle is a great thing. And I see you going very, very far. So everybody has to check out everything Brad Norman. Amen. Oh, I you. agree. All right. Thanks, let's get out that. of here. We will right, be thanks, back guys. in a couple weeks with Mary Bird Song, and everybody have a great gloomy weekend. This is our montage, our only montage, the famous city of cheese and lights. We've done our striped shirts and our parade hats. Together we'll see the signs. Paris! Oh man, I'm beat. Yeah, that montage was exhausting. We can relax at the hotel. Just wait till you see the room I booked.